She was 41 years old, mother of two twin girls. And the West German guards had just found her hanging from the window of her prison cell. The 1976 death of one of the most notorious leftists, agitators, and terrorists in Germany was officially deemed a suicide. Some called the group she ran the Bader-Meinhof Gang, though she personally preferred the name Red Army Faction. Ulrich Meinhof looked the part of an anarcho-communist gangster. And the pictures that we have of her that survived today, she has an open, honest, plain face, staring directly and immodestly at the camera. She often smokes a cigarette wearing stylish, if simplistic, clothing. Her hair is usually unapologetically short, and she's typically in men's trousers, flouting what was still a strong social convention in Germany during the 60s and 70s. Her expression is strong, fierce, unapologetic. Defiance on the way to the gallows. So who was Ulrich Meinhof? Well, believe it or not, she had been a left-wing journalist. A left-wing journalist who was brought up in a family of academics, strong Protestant background, family opposed to the Nazis, deeply opposed to the Nazis. Yet she joined a socialist group, even in West Germany, back in the 1950s, was completely against them. However, the Communist Party in West Germany had been banned, but by 1959, Ulrich Meinhof had been a member. Interestingly enough, and this comes up as a potential question as to her behavior later, in 1960, Ulrich Meinhof received surgery for a brain tumor, and she received a silver clamp in her skull. And so many people believe that her later behavior and her membership in a communist terrorist organization, leaving behind two twin girls, going on to perform acts of violence, acts of murder, robberies, terrorism, that all of this, potentially this behavior could have been because that brain tumor and that surgery. So she works, she takes a job with a leftist newspaper, Konkret, and in 1941, or excuse me, 1961, she ends up marrying the co-founder of that paper, and they have their two twin girls, Regine and Bettina. Today, by the way, Bettina is still around. She is herself a journalist and a researcher on anarchist terrorism and communist violence, and is unabashedly critical of her own mother and her own mother's agenda and methods. So the Red Army faction, Ulrich joins probably a few years after it, be, it first gets started, because she was somebody who early on was simply a fellow traveler. She wasn't necessarily a member. She was a supporter and was writing about them positively for her newspaper. However, as more and more actions, revolutionary attacks took place, she got divorced. Her own colleague, Rudi Deutsch, survived an assassination attempt. And now, now, the leader of the Bader-Meinhof gang, AKA the Red Army faction, 
ends up getting imprisoned. Listen to this. He was permitted to conduct an interview with a young and up-and-coming journalist, Ulrich Meinhoff herself. Yet instead of an interview, Andreas Bader was sprung from jail in one of the most daring and dramatic episodes in their history. During the jailbreak, a librarian was shot and killed by one member of the Red Army faction. And in the chaos that followed, Ulrich, who had been sent there to interview him, makes a split-second decision to join the group and go underground with them. Originally, she just wanted to work with them and, and do her writings and, and describe them. No, she makes the decision to leave her life behind, leave her daughters behind. She's already divorced her husband. And to fully join the Red Army faction. Where does she end up? Well, just like they do today, anarchists travel to the Middle East to receive training in guerrilla tactics, terrorism, and she ends up joining and going to the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They then, with their Jordanian handlers, clash over food and living quarters and creature comforts, you know, kind of similar to the millennial teenagers that went over to the PKK. Now, she becomes estranged from her children, those daughters, the ones that are still around today. But in one incident, she returns to Germany and attempts to kidnap her own daughters and have them brought to the Middle East and trained and indoctrinated by terrorists in order for them to come up and join in the revolution with her. However, this attempt was thwarted in Sicily. They were found out and the girls were returned to her father. In Germany, Meinhof, she was a wanted woman with a reward on her head of no less than 850,000 Deutschmarks. Now, this group, the Red Army Faction, and we'll talk more about this as we go through, assassinations, car bombs, bank robberies, many of which were funded and financed and armed by the KGB themselves. That this was Red Army directed, trained, and funded activity that was going on in West Germany during the Cold War. And we're not talking about a long, long time ago here. This was not the 1930s. This was actual communist paramilitary operations that were going on in Western Germany. And why was this being done? because they were looking to destabilize West Germany and possibly to build up or form public opinion for communists there as well. This is in the midst of the Cold War. So what happens to Ulrich Meinhof? What happens to the Red Army faction? What attacks did they play? We're gonna talk about that. And we're also gonna talk about the way that they directly targeted U.S. forces and American troops stationed in West Germany, stationed in Stuttgart that had been there since the end of World War II. And you have to look at it from a psychological angle as well. What drives, was it really the brain tumor or was it a desire for access, action, and revolution that drove this young woman to be involved in a domestic terrorist communist plot? So people need to understand that the Red Army was no joke. This was, this was not the Antifa of today that runs around and attacks businesses for pleasure 
and and gets off on threatening people in their homes. This was a serious terrorist organization. On the 11th of May in 1972, the Red Army faction placed three pipe bombs at the United States Army headquarters in Frankfurt. This bombing resulted in the death of a U.S. officer and the injury of 13 people. There was another one in Hamburg. Members of the Red Army faction, six bombs at a, at a publishing house. Only three of the five bombs exploded, but 36 people were injured. Then again, May of 1972, just two weeks after, a car bomb that killed three soldiers and injured five more right at the intelligence headquarters at Campbell Barracks in Heidelberg. In 74, the group murdered Gunther von Dreckmann, the president of Germany's Superior Court of Justice. So again and again, this organization committed horrific murders, horrific killings. 1975, the Red Army faction seized the West German embassy in Stockholm, Sweden. They took hostages. They set the building to explode. They demanded the release of their own imprisoned members. Remember, this is before Ulrich Meinhof is still in prison at this point. The government, of course, refused to refuse the request. The Red Army faction murders two of the hostages. Then one of the bombs goes off inadvertently. Several other members finally, um, finally surrender. In 1975, it was actually reported, because people didn't know what was going on, it was reported that the Red Army faction tried to steal mustard gas from a joint facility in West Germany. However, it turns out that it wasn't them. They merely misplaced. But then in 1977, the German autumn took place. And this is after, this is after Ulrich has died one year later, possibly even in retaliation for her death in prison, which of course had been ruled a suicide, but many questions still remained. The head of Dresden Bank was shot and killed in front of his house in Germany. It was a botched kidnapping. But his own family was involved in terms of this. You had government informants, you had hostages, prisoners. Again and again in German autumn, these events keep taking place. An industrialist was, was kidnapped, the president of the German Employers Association, the, the Federation of German Industries, then of course, the hijacking, because keep in mind, so people have to go back in terms of this, that the PLO also frequently targeted Germany. And we talked before about how the PLO had provided some of the early training to the Red Army faction. Of course, the PLO conducted what? The Munich Massacre in 1972 at the Summer Olympics where? In Munich, West Germany. What was the Munich Massacre? Eight members of Black September infiltrated the Olympic Village and murdered two Israeli Olympic team members and took the other nine hostage. Did they receive support on the ground from the Red Army faction? What do you think? So you have to understand that these were communist groups working with the Palestinians inside Germany, provided that fertile ground for all of this to take place. And in fact, at one point in 
the Munich massacre, prior to the Munich massacre, this was when uh, some of the people that were asked to be released included the founders of the Red Army faction, Andreas Bader and Ulrich Meinhof. So they're involved in the Munich massacre right there. Then you have the hijacking of Lufthansa Flight 181. Again, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine. This was conducted in that same German autumn of 1977. Conducted in October. 86 passengers. Finally, the West German counterterrorism group, backed by the Somalis, stormed the aircraft where? Mogadishu, Somalia. During the Cold War, the Red Army faction continued attacks, continued terrorism, all the way up through. By the way, this inspires, the, this is the group in, in Die Hard, right? This is exactly what they're based on, was the Red Army faction. So when you're thinking of Hans Gruber and you're having the debate on whether or not it's a Christmas movie, I honestly don't think it is, um, that, that these guys are based on the Red Army faction. There would be no Nakatomi Plaza and no John McClane if not for the Red Army faction. And so this group, even after the death of Ulrich, even after the death of all the original founders, not only does it continue throughout the 1970s, it continues throughout the 1980s. There's even a third generation of the Red Army faction that goes all the way up to 19. 1998, potentially even 99, they're, they're linked to some, some robberies. 10 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, this group is still around. Now, there are some movies that are made about this, but they're like made for TV movies in Germany. They've never come out in the United States. They've never been released. There's no English language movies about this. And with the exception of Die Hard, which you wouldn't know unless you understood the entire background of the context. So when, you know, when I when people want to come to me and say, is Die Hard a movie? Is it a Christmas movie or an anti-Christmas movie? Or excuse me, a, a Christmas movie or just an action movie? I say, no, it's an anti-communist movie. That's what it is. You need to actually understand the underpinnings of what the group, the Hans Gruber is a member of, is supposed to be, why they're conducting these actions. And the idea that they're tied in real life to the USSR and international communism. I feel like the world was a little bit better, a little bit easier to understand when things were black and white, or should we say blue and red, because we knew who the enemy was and we were more than willing to target them and say who they were. But you don't get that today. Today you get lied about. So this group, all the way up through the 80s, all the way up through the 90s, conducting these attacks in Germany they're known about, and certainly in West Germany they're known about. But in the United States, you don't hear very much about the story of Ulrich Meinhof. When we come back in our very last segment, I want to go back to her. I want to go back to the trial and understand in her own words, and I will tell you the things that she said, the reasons behind her actions, what happened to her, the sentencing, the investigation, and her death, very suspicious death, in prison behind bars. Stay tuned, come right back. So let's go back to that day, the 9th of May, 1976. Ulrich Meinhof, 
She's been arrested. She's been convicted in a two-year-long trial. She was given eight years. She was found hung in her cell. Now, an autopsy, of course, was, was immediately conducted, and it was ruled suicide. In fact, international and independent investigations have both determined this to be suicide rather than uh, some type of foul play. Interestingly enough, in late 2002, and I mentioned before her daughter, Bettina, who's gone on to become a journalist of her own, talking about anarchist action, anarchist activity. She discovered that, believe it or not, her mother's brain had been saved by the German government. And remember, I told you before about that silver clamp that had been placed in the brain of Ulrich Meinhof back in 1960, back during that, that brain tumor. And it found that she did have brain injury uh, near her amygdala. And this, believe it or not, through x-rays, because she had become so emaciated during her time with the Red Army faction that people couldn't even identify her properly. And all her years on the run, all her years in the Middle East receiving training with the Palestinians, that they used x-rays and they used that silver clamp and the brain surgery to determine that she was, in fact, Ulrich Meinhof. So the brain does get found by her daughter. And interestingly enough, though, at the time, many people had claimed, was, you know, could this brain surgery have led her to have issues with her ability to control her own impulses, lack of inhibition control. But a psychiatrist at Magdeburg University later re-examines the brain and became doubtful, believe it or not, that Meinhof was fully criminal responsible because of the damage to her amygdala. So perhaps that may provide some solace and finality for the daughters as an explanation of why their mother left them at 10 years old and went off to join an organization like this. But at the same time, for members of Antifa, you have to understand that one of the most famous and infamous communist leaders, paramilitary leaders of all time, certainly of the modern era, was literally brain damaged and only joined an organization like this because of that brain damage, the brain tumor, the surgery, and the damage to her own amygdala. And so when you look at Antifos of today, when you look at Antifa's history, go all the way back to when we talked about their start, Ernst Talman, the destabilizers of, of the Weimar Republic, the terrorist acts they, they conducted throughout. And by the way, that, that doesn't include just the assassination of McKinley here in the United States, but also assassinations that took place across Europe, in Russia, the Tsar. We need to understand that these paramilitary groups and these revolutionary groups always lead to more terror, to more anger, and more destruction. Soviet Union was an example of what happens when a regime like that gets into power. Communist Cuba, another example. You're seeing examples of this in South America right now. And here in the United States, 
we've now at long last seen these types of groups raise their ugly heads. It goes back to the Battle of Seattle in 1999, where believe it or not, Antifa was protesting the allowance of China into the World Trade Organization. Funny how they don't seem to talk about that anymore. Because here's the difference. The problem is that for Antifa today, they've become, for lack of a better word, wokeified. They don't just embrace first-generation Marxism now. They embraced cultural Marxism. And that is the mark because Marxism works. And when I say works, I mean gain a foothold in countries where there is a strong upper class and a large lower class. So it works in imperial countries such as Imperial Russia, Imperial China, or post-imperial China in the 1920s. But what about the United States? What about a country that's largely diamond-shaped, where you have a small upper class, small lower class, and a large middle, a large middle class? Well, the way to divide a country like that in a country like the United States, which is a diverse country, is through the division on ethnic lines, the division on, on racial lines, on gender lines, creating new genders, and then going and pushing for more and more revolutionary uh, fervor in order to, quote unquote, stand for the interests of these groups. And this is the same reason that communists across the world and Antifa across the world always claim to commit their violence. It's always in the name of the oppressed. It's always in the name of the downtrodden. But of course, just like every other group, when they become in power themselves, when they attain power themselves, they then become the oppressors. They then become the ones with their boots on the heels of the populace. And if you do not go along with their version of what they call, to use Marcuse's phrase, repressive tolerance, then you are the one who goes to jail. Then you are the one who gets sent away, sent to the gulag, like we saw in Russia, like Solzhenitsyn saw in the Soviet Union, like so many saw in communist China. Because revolutionary movements like these only seek to destabilize and only seek to destroy. And because these great communist movements of the past, as Yuri Bezmenov would tell us, they knew they could never defeat the United States militarily. Red Dawn scenario doesn't work because you can't get an army into Mexico without the United States noticing. So what do you do? Strategic deterrence. You get the United States to fight itself. You increase the divisions. You increase and polarize the populace. You create movements that seek to overturn the established order that used unnatural elements to create a new order based around oppression, based around this, hier this, this inverted hierarchy of victimization. And in doing so, you take out your main opponents from the world stage. We used to be a serious country. We used to have a proper country. And it is our job to reestablish the United States' role as that proper country through a national renewal. And that is the point of what we are doing and why we'll never follow the footsteps of Ulrich Meinhof, the Red Army Faction, and Antifa. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission.
to Leishur.